Hello, Lena Dunham here, just popping in with my dear friend and co-host and gossip wife, Alyssa Bennett. Hi, Lena. You're about to hear the latest episode of our podcast, The C Word, which is now available on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. We dive deep into the lives of women society is called crazy, from Mary Shelley to Whitney Houston. We recommend you start with our first episode on Johnson & Johnson era's Casey Johnson, which gives you a real introduction to what our show is all about. A mission statement, so to speak. I love Jocelyn Wildenstein and Wendy Deng because I think they're really funny. And our deep dive into Judy Garland is one of our most exhaustively researched, and it is definitely a fan favorite. Yep. So you can find all our episodes by subscribing to the Luminary channel on Apple Podcasts. Apple subscription program is new, so you can just go to apple.co slash cword. That's apple.co slash cword without the dash. Wow, I'm actually doing that right now on my phone, Alyssa, as we're talking. <laughs> For now, here's our most recent episode on Amy Winehouse. Heard of her? Part one. Okay, so if we sound a little different than usual, that's because we're not recording in a studio. We're on separate coasts because of this pandemic that we're in. So I'm actually recording from Malibu, California. I know that sounds very glamorous. And then Alyssa is in chained in a basement. In, <laughs> I'm still in the basement. Where are you? A Delaware? Delaware Water Gap. Perfect. Wrecked and wretched. Who the hell chopped all that firewood on her face? A hack black music ventriloquist. A self-aggrandizing self-abuser who's taken seriously because she makes a show of soul. Crackhead whore. A hot mess. Wino. This week, we're talking about Amy Winehouse. You want to know if I'll survive, get along okay without you. I'll be fine, yeah, I'll be all right. No, that's a lie. I will fucking die. Don't break. Welcome back to The C Word, a Luminary Podcast production. This is a show where we discuss women whose society deemed mad, sad, or just plain bad, and we attempt to untangle who they really were beyond their wild reputations. We are going to talk about women who've been called crazy by sifting through the cultural trash of history, one glamorous rumor at a time. Oh my God, I'm self-aggrandizing self-abuser Lena Dunham. And I'm Alyssa Bennett, historian of bad behavior. And we will never call you crazy. Before we get started, we don't know everything. We just are passionate students of these interesting women in history, and we're trying to focus a lens on how and why they achieved such notoriety. This is a discussion about what various people have said about these women over the years. So we're not saying that every statement or account we'll be discussing is necessarily the truth. So if you hear something that really piques your interest, we encourage you to do your own Google gumshoe investigation. Our hearts are in the right place. And together we can try to get to the bottom of what has been said about these women over time. So now on to Amy. She's one of the most exciting and brilliantly talented vocalists to emerge in this country in many, many years. It is Amy Winehouse. And the Grammy goes to Amy Winehouse. And the winner, Amy Winehouse. Yes, yes, Amy Winehouse. It's the one, the only... 
the tumultuous life of Amy Winehouse. She had dazzling talent and ferocious inner demons. But the demons were already catching up to the diva. With the spectacular highs came desperate lows. Not long after she became a star, she became near constant tabloid fodder. Scandalous headlines about her personal troubles. Destructive addiction. Clearly drug addled, her arrests, her apparently abusive relationship with her husband, and her very hard partying. As her popularity soared, her weight plummeted. Drinking and drug problems made her concert appearances increasingly erratic. She was booed off the stage. Very, very disastrous performance. And it was the last one that we'll ever see from Amy Winehouse. Alyssa, what are five things we need to know about Amy Winehouse? Number one, you know who Amy Winehouse is. She was very talented. She had that voice. She had a signature beehive and she had out-of-control liquid eyeliner. You remember her look? Yeah, I remember her look. Number two. Well, she was also known for having some personal issues, capital P, capital I, issues that everyone was more than happy to hear her sing about. She wrote songs about heartbreak and drinking and, of course, about not wanting to go to a rehabilitation facility. And, Alyssa, who does want to go to a rehabilitation facility? (laughs) Number three, but there was more to Amy's bad behavior than what was portrayed in the early 2000s tabloids. Although everyone knew she was very talented from the start, her early years were not the best. Her parents were often absent. She struggled with bulimia, and it wasn't too far into her teenage years that she began self-medicating with alcohol. And it says weed in the document, but I have to say pot because I'm old. With alcohol (laughs) and pot, grass. Number four, Amy's first album and big break at 20 years old was, it was huge. Um, She made it in a very big way and people weren't just talking about her voice. From the start, everyone wanted to speculate about her drug and alcohol use, her tumultuous relationship that gave us tabloid fodder for years, and her increasingly messy live performances that went from shambolic to dark. Number five, the public criticized her and simultaneously egged her on. We loved her bad behavior. And then we chastised her for wasting her talent. On July 23rd, 2011, Amy died of alcohol poisoning. She was 27 years old. That 27 club. Just stay inside. If you're like about to turn 27 and your life is going off the tracks, just stay inside and drink tea for a couple of months and then go back at it. You'll probably be fine. Keep it in fucking doors. It's like how my dad says nothing good happens after 2 a.m. It's like nothing good happens between 26 and 27. (laughs) That's really true. So what's the real story, Alyssa? So Amy Jade Winehouse was born September 14, 1983 in Enfield, North London. Her mother, Janice, was a pharmacist and her father, Mitch, was a window salesman and later famously drove a taxi. You know who else drove a taxi? Mm, Tony Smith, the minimalist sculptor. My father, Carol Dunham. Really? Yeah. But he was like not rough and tough enough for the streets of New York and he was like, When people would stiff him on the fair, he was like, I just couldn't handle it. It made him too sad. That's cute. So as any amateur psychologist like myself might deduce, Amy's life began with some tumult 
Janice had received a cursory multiple sclerosis diagnosis in 1980, and Mitch began an affair when Amy was a baby. Oh, yeah. He would continue his relationship with this woman whom he ultimately married until he divorced Janice when Amy was nine. And there are a lot of rumors about this woman that you can find on the internet (laughs) in various interviews, but it's thought that Amy and her brother were very aware of this affair prior to the divorce and that they reportedly referred to this woman as, quote, daddy's work wife. Oh, no. Which is funny. It's like a phrase that's been popularized as like what you call your BFF at work. But they were saying it for real. They thought it was real. I mean, there's also something just so tragic about two little kids being deeply aware of the presence of that woman. Later, after her song, What Is It About Men came out, Amy said, it's me trying to work out my dad's problems with sticking with one woman, trying to make sense of why he did certain things. I completely understand it now. People like to have sex with people. I don't begrudge my dad just because he has a penis. But also read that statement with a little bit of suspicion because she also began acting out around the time that this divorce happened. And she earned herself the family nickname Hurricane Amy because she was turbulent and uncontrollable. She also supposedly later said she'd been greatly impacted by Mitch's adultery and the subsequent dissolution of her parents' marriage. So I think just let's take a second and think about the kind of chaos that permeated this household if the claims that we've just discussed are true. She would have been very confused about what constituted a successful marriage. She would likely have perceived her mother as the more vulnerable member of the relationship. And she would have intuited that men can drop their families at any moment and just start over. I also think there's something really interesting that sometimes happens in families where the father makes a choice like this, which is that I think often when women see their mothers in vulnerable positions like this, they actually come to idolize their fathers and get angry at their mothers. Yes. Oh, yes. And so there's an issue where it's like, instead of seeing your mom as some kind of martyr or recognizing what it took for her to stay or what she went through, ultimately you see your mother as like a pathetic victim or a failure a failure failure. and you see your father as this person who like basically you just like live in a desperate attempt to earn their love and so there's this like strange switch up that happens where the person who's the victimizer becomes the hero and the person who's been victimized becomes the monster So Mitch is also away from the house a lot, right? Like, I think that he worked a lot throughout her early life. So she came to understand that the way to get his attention was to fall in love with the thing that he was in love with, which in addition to his work wife was jazz. So she knew as a kid that a surefire way to get his attention was to listen to music with him, to sing Frank Sinatra songs with him. So she becomes kind of invested in this very specific type of music as a very young child. It was like a way to stand in front of her father and guarantee that she would get his attention. And this is going to come up again. So when Amy's dad was busy with his work wife and putting in long hours down at the old window shop, Her mom had a hard time exercising authority and later admitted that she didn't know how to say, quote unquote, stop. But Amy was very, very close with her paternal grandmother, Cynthia, who seemed to be the one adult in her life who didn't have a problem telling her the very hard word, no. No. Are you jeweling? Oh, yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I think there is this thing, you know, she was like preternaturally talented because it's almost like she willed it into being, right? Like she's listening to all of these records with her dad as a kid. She's like, I want my daddy's attention. So she kind of teaches herself at a very young age to be able to mimic what she hears on these records. So she very likely would have understand that her natural gift for performing could be used to secure Mitch's attention and her early dedication to pursuing a life in show business is very easily read as a tactic that she used to establish her specialness to him. So she molded herself in the vision of what her father loved. And I think in a very significant way, this comes back up again in the shambolic relationship to end all shambolic relationships that she had with Blake Fielder Civil. And as you know, we have noticed this in so many of our documents, which is young women with absent fathers who have decided that Becoming the biggest, the brightest, and the best in their chosen field is the thing that's going to bring back the attention that they have lost. Of daddy. They're like, where's my daddy? And it's almost frustrating because it's such pop psychology that you almost don't want to think it's true. Like it's something that just like a male Freudian psychologist would announce. And you're like, I don't want to think this is true. I don't want to think this is how female minds work. But also we know that it's how so many minds work. It's also just the frequency with which we stumble upon the stories that have exactly the same skeleton to them. It just like dads, be nice to your kids. And otherwise you're going to end up with kids who are really good at singing and really bad at living. So Amy attended three different performing arts academies during her childhood, including the Sylvia Young Theater School in central London. I'm going to apply there for next year. I can't wait. (laughs) I know that they've been looking for 57 year olds to really shine. (laughs) I'm going to study tap dancing at Sylvia Young. Do you know that my mother started, she got tap shoes this year and is taking lessons? Oh, I love that. I tried to self-teach a couple of years ago. Self-teach. Yeah. Whenever I hear my mother tapping on her little like tap square, I'm so happy. It's a very nice sound. Well, Amy was kicked out of the Sylvia Young Theater School because she did not apply herself. So why don't you be careful and apply yourself to your tapping? That's going to happen to me too. But in her application to Sylvia Young, Amy, age 12, wrote... My school life and school reports are filled with could do betters and does not work to her full potential. I want to go somewhere where I'm stretched right to my limits and perhaps even beyond to sing in lessons without being told to shut up. But mostly I have this dream to be very famous, to work on stage. It's a lifelong ambition. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles for five minutes. It's really funny for me to hear this 12-year-old Amy Winehouse and try to reconcile it with her public image as like a pop star, which was like bad girl, you know, like this is like any nerdy child actress that you would ever hear talk about their dreams at nine or 10 or 11. It's like a very rote kind of statement that doesn't exactly adhere to the surface of Amy Winehouse's we would come to know her, but we'll get into that too. Yes. So outside of school, Amy and her friend Juliet formed a rap group called Sweet and Sour, which Amy once described as, quote, the little white Jewish salt and pepper. So here we see Amy's major musical influences coalescing into what would become her signature style, one which was certainly greatly influenced by traditional jazz. Right. But we also can see shaped by sensibilities from the rap and hip hop that Amy loved as a teen, but we'll be getting into this more a little bit later. 
Yeah. So she might have loved jazz and rap and hip hop, but she also loved bad behavior and she was getting up to some bad shit. So in addition to her penchant for smoking weed that I have to call pot or grass, <laughs> I've never called it grass. I'm going to start. My dad likes and to call it dope. Well, dope is heroin to me. Like if you're like a Gen Xer, dope means heroin. Yeah which I guess is also antique, but I'm sticking with it. So she also got into bulimia and that was a disease that she would at times very clearly suffer from for the rest of her life. So when she was 15, she supposedly told Janice, I've got this really great diet, mom. I eat what I want and then I just bring it all up. So her parents had put her on antidepressants when she was 13, but Amy did not like the effects and began to self-medicate. And she later identified this era of her life as a turning point. She said, my parents pretty much realized that I would do whatever I wanted. And that was it, really. I mean, it's like the bad girl's mantra. It's the bad teen's mantra since probably like 1920. Yeah. Like, I'm going to dance the Charleston and that's it, really. You know, like (laughs) they've said this throughout time. So it's funny to look at these dates because this story doesn't seem that long ago to me, even though like we're like getting into 2002 here and it's almost 20 years ago, which is kind of crazy. So it's 2002. Amy's been diagnosed with depression. She's struggling with an eating disorder. She's ditching school, but she continues to pursue these fantasies of being a famous singer. So at 15, she began performing jazz in jazz clubs. And just one year later, I met a young man named Nick Shymansky, who was a 19-year-old kid who eventually became her first manager. And he's going to pop up throughout this episode. Remember his name. He brought her into record companies, and she would strum her guitar and sing. And executives were really excited by this. And, you know, to commodity-minded individuals who encountered her as a young unpolished songstress, they were like, holy shit, something's going to happen here. So by the end of 2002, at the age of 19, Amy signed a record deal with Island Records, a very reputable record label at Universal. She also got a new management team overseen by none other than Pop Idol King and Spice Girls maestro himself, Simon Fuller. I think also that this is a good moment to kind of briefly discuss Amy's voice and talent She was prodigiously gifted as a vocalist. It's important to note that adults who were into jazz, you know, that's the community of people who are probably like, don't knock on our door. That's my own prejudice about jazz people. I don't know any of you really. But she would come around and they would be like, holy shit. So there's this impulse to start treating her as older than she is because her voice is able to telegraph this sort of seasoned pain that we anticipate she shouldn't be able to understand yet at 19. And also, there's something about her voice. I think that people are really attracted to voices that don't sound like they're coming out of the person they're coming out of. Like, that's a thing that people go crazy for. And when someone opens their mouth and you're shocked. That's what people say about me when I sing. Yeah. I mean, that's how I feel. Whenever you break into Paula Abdul, I'm like, it's not coming from this body. (laughs) But like, that's why everyone went insane for Susan Boyle and the entire country of England went bananas. Like when someone sings and you're shocked that it's coming out of the body, it's coming out of that has a real. Like a teeny tiny voice coming out of a giant man. 
Exactly. You just like it. But she was a large voice coming out of a tiny woman. And she was an ancient voice coming out of a young girl. And people went bananas. But I think the thing about this that is really important, that is going to become like the thorn in her side, is that she learns from a very young age that she'll get more attention performing heartache than she will for performing a song. Yeah. It becomes such a significant element of her performing style and of her persona that she cannot shake herself free of it. And I think she eventually starts to look for ways to experience heartache for reals. This is a theme, I think, with a certain kind of female artist. Like, I think about this with female poetesses of the past, the Sylvia Plath and the Anne Sexton. Yeah. I thought about this when I was in my 20s, which was like, I was trying to live my dating stories in order to write about my dating stories. Like, this is something that I think repeats itself among a certain brand of female artist again and again and again. Sometimes when I hear someone recounting a tale of personal humiliation, I feel like a flash of jealousy and I wish that it had happened to me Oh, because I love to write about humiliation. So this is like another part of the spectrum where she's looking to perform heartache in a way that would strike the world as authentic. So her career is taking off. She moved into an apartment in a London neighborhood called Camden, perhaps you've heard of it, with a childhood friend. And when she wasn't working on her music, she was smoking a bunch of weed, which I'm going to call pot or grass, because that's what unsupervised teenagers do. They love it. Well, in 2003, Amy's debut album was released just after her 20th birthday. It was titled simply Frank, both an allusion to Frank Sinatra and an apt description of Amy's general manner. Frank peaks at number 13. I don't know a lot about music, but that's probably good enough. And the critics were crazy about it. Even if like the people weren't crazy about it, like people like me who heard it and were like, that sounds kind of dusty or like something greasy that has dust over it, like in the kitchen. Critics were like, she's amazing. This is the new voice of jazz. Wow. So it is very important to note right here that Amy was incredibly indebted to Black musical tradition, but was often praised for doing something new. And she said herself that she felt that her album was, quote, straight hip hop. I don't really get that from Frank, but I'm an unsophisticated ear and what do I know? I think it's really important also to talk about the fact that her look her attitude, her voice, people were able to handle it coming out of a tiny white girl in a way that they weren't able to handle it coming out of other women. Absolutely. And it was definitely noted during her lifetime that she was drawing extensively from Black music that had existed for generations. She worked very closely with a producer named Salam Remy and recorded and performed with Black musicians all the time, most notably the Dap Kings, who were Sharon Jones's band. So Sharon would go on to say that her career had been stalled because execs saw her Blackness and her image as too difficult to market. So Let's take this all into account as we get into this moment where this career starts really heating up. Amy Winehouse starts like edging away from white jazz lounge singers and going into like 60s soul, Motown, all of these things that are very rooted in a very specific musical tradition. And she's being given this very outsized credit for championing this type of music We're going to talk about it. Absolutely. And this is something, again, that comes up a lot on the show, I think. It's capitalism always searching for a new stream of revenue, 
always searching for a new thing to commodify, regardless of whether or not that thing has been like an intact apparatus of culture for decades and decades and decades. So there's actually a really important and incredible article that I recommend everyone read by Daphne Brooks that was published by The Nation in 2008 that examines how Winehouse not only leaned heavily on the music of groups like the Supremes and the Ronettes and the sound of artists like Dinah Washington, but how she defiled the look that Black female artists used to telegraph their dignity during the civil rights movement. Very well said, Alyssa. Well, Amy would later go on to say that she was only 80% behind Frank. In one interview, she said, I think they put fake strings on the track, The Box, but I wasn't part of that. I would never, ever have put strings on my record ever. Sorry, I went really bitter there because I hate that guy who did that. Part of what made Amy fun in those early days was her complete lack of media etiquette. But a consequence of the entertainment value we found in her candor was that it set the conditions of possibility rolling for us to look at everything she did with a kind of what will this bitch say next anticipation. And I relate to this hugely, this sense in your 20s that you've started out saying whatever the fuck you want and now that's what the people expect from you. And so you can only take it further and further and further, but in taking it further, you can only damage yourself. Well, I hope that I never get famous enough to be interviewed because if someone asks me questions, I like leave my body and say things that are not necessarily in my best interest. And I would fuck up all the time. Well, throughout her career, she would regularly diss other musicians. She would give interviews half in the bag. She would be disarmingly honest about her bad behavior. And it made us permanently interested in her in a way that ended up becoming increasingly corrosive. And it's corrosive for us because it corrodes the purity of our relationship to her music. And it's corrosive for her because the reason that we're paying attention to her is marred. We're not paying attention to her because we fucking adore her. We're paying attention to her because we're waiting to pounce on her next move. Well, it's like what I always say. I became interested in her in a bad way. Yes. And there's one interview in which Amy shits on cover albums and two-step remixes. What's a two-step remix? I mean, we don't know. We don't know anything about music, Alyssa. <laughs> You and I know your favorite song. I only listen to like four songs. I listen to like Roy Orbison, Pavement, and The Clash. Alyssa. Like a real old bitch. Your favorite song is the song from the Vitamin Water commercial. <laughs> I could never be as fun as Vitamin Water. Call me. I'm looking for an agent. Also, Do you know I, what someone I, I can't to me? believe someone that voice is coming out of that body. I could never be as fun as vitamin water. When I have this microphone in front of my face, I feel like, give me the big mic. I'm going to sing to you like Brian Ferry. Mm. Back to Amy. So there's one interview in which Amy shits on cover albums and two-step remixes. I'm not trying to say I'm too good for that, but I fucking am. Fuck all that. There's enough shit music around. There's enough shit music around. Just because everyone else likes two-step doesn't mean I'm going to do a remix that people can dance to. She's fun, but... She's very concerned with being real. And I think that this concern works against her in two ways, one of which, as we stated, this commitment to authenticity makes her seek out um, authentic pain. And number two, the commitment to authenticity blinds her to the fact that she herself is not always as consistently authentic as she wishes she were. 
No. It's dead, all that shit is dead. People still do that like it's new. It's not new to anyone. Everyone knows what Big Bang sounds like. Everyone knows what Big, Big Bang looks like. It's interesting. It's interesting that she says this thing like, that's done, that's been done, because everything that she would go on to do had also been done, yep. only it had been done by women of color, by black women. So it's like you listen to her say this and you're kind of like, oh, that's cool. Like she's so sort of um, confident and she's like breaking out of whatever this early part of her career is, but she's also incorrect in a really major way that I think she got called out on in many ways during her career, but not in any way that uh, altered people's relationship to the music or altered her relationship to her source material. Because she is a source material artist, I think, in a major way. Because there's nothing dignified about taking old music with the same arrangements and singing over it. Like it's like you're a fucking karaoke machine. Can I ask a question, though, which may seem blind, which is, her getting aggro about big band albums doesn't seem that offensive to me. Do you know what I mean? So the idea that like... Oh, no, I think it's fun. It's fun. There's something it's, fun about it. It's not like she announced that some specific person was a monster. She was just like, I'm a young person and I think big band albums are boring. And it's sort of like... I cried watching the Chicago 7 movie last night. And part of it was because I was so obsessed with Abby Hoffman getting on the stand and just, I was like, I want to be in contempt of court. It's so cool to be in contempt of court. I was like, I'm never going to get the chance to be in contempt of court. And like, Amy Winehouse was in fucking contempt of court. She was in contempt of court. The old people were like, we're going to citizens arrest you. Yeah. The young people were like, do it, Amy. So back to Amy. In 2005, Amy Winehouse is 22 years old. What were you doing at 22? I was probably like asleep in a bar. I was working in a children's clothing store and like secretly writing scripts on a fur rug in my father's studio. It's oh, glamorous. So she's getting noticed in the music world, but she said in an interview that she did not actively work on an album between Frank's release and 2006's Back to Black because she felt she didn't have anything to write about, which goes back to this thing where it's like she really feels like she has to have a real feeling to make an album. And she'd kind of gotten past the real feeling about her daddy who was not around because he came back and was like clapping for her in the audience. So at this time, she's spending a lot of time drinking. She's playing pool at her local in Camden. I believe that's what they call them, the down the local. Oh, yeah. And she meets a man who will go down in the Bad Boyfriend Hall of Fame, Blake Fielder Civil, whose name I always feel should be Blake Civil Fielder, but it's none of my business. Well, I think his name should be Blake Civil Disobedience because no. I want you to know that I have never done more Google research on a single person who has not contributed you, to society. Yeah, it's grim. So they meet in a pub at the local. Blake was a music video production assistant, the greatest fake job in history. And according to Amy's lyrics, he was a gambler sometimes. And he blow dried hair on fashion shoots sometimes incredible mix <laughs> of non-jobs. I'm sorry, but there if you were 22 and you met a guy who was like, I'm a gambler sometimes, I'm a video production assistant sometimes, and I blow dry hair on fashion shoots sometimes, you'd be like, well, what are you doing tonight? 
The guy who named Twiggy was like a hairstylist who was also a criminal. This is classic. It's classic. They met at a pub. They played some pool. They went home together the night they met, despite the fact that they were both seeing other people. And she just felt like this shit was a real. And she got that infamous pocket tattoo, which I have copied with the name Blake in script. But on a darker note, it was also around this time that Amy's grandmother, Cynthia, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And as we mentioned earlier, Amy was incredibly close with her grandmother. She was the main parental presence in Amy's life. And they had continued their tradition of Friday night Seder dinners well into Amy's adulthood. But more than that, remember that Cynthia was one of the few people who could tell Amy no. So the no's went out the window. No more no's. And we don't know. We weren't there, but it's not hard to imagine that Amy might throw herself into a new love to replace this major emotional bond that she was losing. We also know that she said herself that she used heartache as a primary inspiration. Don't do that. So Amy was also coping with intensified dedication to her burgeoning alcoholism. And Blake was always there to be like, your cup is looking kind of empty, babe. Yeah, you know those bad influence friends who are like, are you sure you don't want another Xanax? You don't want to have another one on an ice cream sundae? You'll feel really good. He was like that. You guys all know about my bad influence boyfriend of my early 20s who convinced me to steal all of the medication after my mother had any, any dental procedure and bring it to him in tinfoil. And... His thing was just like, wouldn't that be better with a little bit of cocaine on top of it? Right. Like, I made you a fruit salad and it has four Vicodins buried beneath the melon. And you're like, I can't wait. I remember going to his house and doing drugs and watching that movie, The Night Porter, and being like... Oh, classic bad behavior, bad influence friend movie. That's the classic. Yeah. And I remember him being like, I have a girlfriend, so we can't kiss, but we can have sex. In the butt. So Amy was also coping I don't like that you said that because it's true. (laughs) (laughs) So... Back to Amy. Her manager slash friend, Nick, remember Shymansky, love to say that word, said, I've never seen such a change in a human being. He said that she would call him up in the middle of the night, absolutely fucked, asking him to pick her up. He would drive around Camden trying to figure out what pub she was calling from because she herself did not know. How big is Camden? It's not that big. It's like four streets. Amy said she started drinking more when she was with Blake because she used to smoke a lot of weed, but Blake didn't like weed, so she needed to find something they could love together. She said, I suppose if you have an addictive personality, then you go from one poison to the other. Guess what? Blake liked crack and heroin. So when Back to Black comes out one year after this meeting, she talks about not listening to jazz much anymore because she's listening to Motown and the Shangri-Las. One saying of them, I love the drama. I love the atmosphere. I love the sound effects. And they wrote the most depressing song ever. I can never go home anymore. When me and my boyfriend finished, I used to listen to that song on repeat, just sitting on my kitchen floor with a bottle of Jack Daniels. I'd pass out, wake up and do it again. You can never go home anymore. It's like not that sad, to be honest, but I get where she was coming from. So 
Blake and Amy date for a few months, but then Blake breaks up with her and goes back to his girlfriend. But don't worry, because he's going to be back to fuck her life up forever before you can count to 10. Ugh. So for now, Amy is destroyed. She's drinking like crazy. There are signs that her eating disorder has returned. And she put it most succinctly herself when she said, quote, my ex went back to his girlfriend and I went back to drinking in dark times. And when she would make a quote like this publicly, people would then listen to that album. Maybe someone who had just been dumped by their boyfriend or girlfriend. They would listen to that album and they would be like, this bitch really understands how I feel. So she is back in this battle where she has to become emblematic of like international young adult heartbreak. Amy also later said of this time, I had never felt the way I feel about him about anyone in my life. I thought we'd never see each other again. I wanted to die. I think that the one thing that Blake had going for him was that Amy thought that he was cooler than she was. And it does not matter if it's true or not. Objectively, we can look back in time and identify that, in fact, he was not cooler than her, that he was not cool at all. But it does not matter because it's what she thought. And that is like it's a kind of stranglehold that he had over her that she looked at him and she was like, this guy's so cool. That's like you and me. (laughs) Honestly, truly. And like, there's a power to thinking somebody's cooler than you. It's deeper than thinking someone's smarter than you. It's deeper than thinking someone's nicer than you. It's deeper than all of it. It makes you feel so powerfully small. And so when they call you back, you have this moment of feeling big It's almost like the moment that you do drugs again after not doing them for six months. It's like all worth it for those 15 seconds. And you were like, why did I suffer? Why did I suffer without this person? So he really had this over her. And the fact that he would kind of like intermittently reject her and leave and then come back kind of intensified his hold on her. So... At this point, it's late 2005. Nick Shymansky is getting increasingly concerned. Amy is having small accidents. She's waking up and drinking immediately. She's totally obsessed. And she is looking to obliterate. So basically, at this point, Amy's at the darkest point that she's ever been at. There used to be a sparkle to darkness ratio that has shifted considerably. Now there's more darkness than sparkle. So Nick and another manager, also named Nick... Too many Nicks tell Amy she has to go to rehab. And she says, I think we can guess. No, no. She's like, no, thank you. No. (laughs) No, thank you. Or so we'd all come to believe when the single rehab came out a little over a year later. But according to Shymansky, that is not the full story. Apparently, Amy was hesitant, as anyone would be but somewhat open to the idea. She told the Knicks that she just wanted her dad to look her in the eyes and tell her he thought she needed to go. I relate. The Knicks have said they were under the impression that Mitch supported the plan, but when they brought Amy to his place, he apparently told her she didn't have to go. In his book, Amy's dad said he never thought rehab was necessary. We don't know. We weren't there, but either way, he does not tell her to go to rehab, and so she does not go to rehab. And I think there are a couple of things going on. So one of the things that I would speculate is happening here as someone who does not know and was not there. 
First of all, there's like this classic divorced parent shit where now the Knicks are like her mom trying to tell her no. And she's like, you can't tell me no. And then she goes to daddy and daddy's like, do whatever you want. Like, you don't have to listen to those Knicks. And then the other thing that's happening is that let's give Mitch the benefit of the doubt here. Let's say that she presents herself to him on a day when she's kind of in control, right? When she's not, it's not a day when she's had an accident. She doesn't have a bruise on her face. She doesn't reek of metabolizing alcohol. She has two shoes on her feet and all of her dentistry in place. So she goes to him and she looks like she's doing all right. And she's like, what do you think? Do I have to go to rehab? And he looks at her and he's probably like, you seem like you're fine. No, I don't think it's necessary. Speculating. Well, I will also say when I went to rehab, it was really, really hard for my parents to imagine that that was a place I needed to go because they considered me having to go there to be a reflection on them and their parenting skills. And so I actually ended up going to visit the counselor who suggested that I go with my father and made him sit in the room with me. And I think it was hearing from another adult that made my dad go like, okay, But I think if it had just been the two of us sitting there and my dad thought that he could fix me sitting in his house or fix me by giving me a giant hug or fix me by telling me that I was great at my job, he probably would have done it. It is said that Amy went and met with an addiction counselor for about 15 minutes. She said she went in, told them, quote, I drink a lot, but I'm not an alcoholic. I drink a lot because I'm really in love with someone and it's messed up, unquote, and then walked out. This incident would, of course, inspire the hit song, Rehab. Oh, yeah. So she has refused therapy, and her rejection of treatment permanently damaged her relationship with her management, especially Nick Shymansky, love your last name, who she'd been really close friends with since she was a teenager. Amy was trying to get Nick to leave Simon Fuller to manage her full time. And Nick gave her a gentle ultimatum. He said she needed to let him help her get sober or he was out. So she would not or could not agree to this. And she and Nick dissolved their professional relationship, which is pretty sad, honestly. It is sad because Nick had been there since the beginning and Nick was the deepest believer in her. And when you watch the documentary about her, there's a real deep disbelief and tragedy still in Nick that things turned out the way that they did. And I would also suggest that I think that it would be likely were Amy to have been able to get herself sober that as she kind of continued on in her career, if that's the decision that she made, that Nick would have been a person that she could trust because she would have known that he had always had her best interests in mind and that he had loved her before anybody knew who she was. So it's, I'm sure that that's a relationship that is filled with a lot of regrets and sadness. Yep. Okay. So it's 2006 instead of rehab, Amy goes back to the studio with an ever-dwindling list of confidants around her. A lot of people close to Amy now say that if she hadn't made Back to Black, she would have had a better chance at recovery. And maybe that's true, but it's probably not how Amy saw it. Throughout her life, she insisted she needed music as her outlet for when her demons caught up to her. So she said... I write songs because I'm fucked in the head and need to get something good out of something bad. I never thought this would be a great song. Who's going to hear this? I thought, fuck, I'm going to die if I don't write down the way I feel. I'm going to fucking do myself in. It's nothing spectacular. But I'm going to make another wild suggestion. And I'm going to say that she wrote this album specifically 
not only just about Blake Fielder Civil, Civil Fielder, but also for him. I think that it was a way for her to sort of culminate all of these influences that he had exposed her to. Is this a very cynical point of view? I don't know. No. I think it was a chance for her to culminate all these influences that he'd exposed her to and to show him like how cool she was. I think that she was devastated beyond belief, but that she was, I mean, don't you ever write anything and think like that person who hates me or that person who used to love me is going to see this and then they're going to regret that we're not close. Welcome to my whole life. Like, even as an adult, as a 34-year-old adult who understands that that is not what writing is for, I... <laughs> I Maybe it is. Maybe that is what writing's for, to punish people who didn't pay enough attention to you. My first book was 100% just like ex-boyfriend punishment to the max. And I'm not proud of any of that. I'm not proud of any of that. I think it's fine. I just pivoted. I think that's what writing's for, to punish people who aren't nice to you or who don't love you anymore. <laughs> But it's real. Like you do, I think as an art, as an artist, you do think about those people, regardless of whether or not like the pain is active, you can reactivate it at any moment. So for Amy, this pain is very active. It's very new. And I think that she was doing it to like exercise something from her soul. But I think she was also doing it because she maybe believed in the law of attraction. And this was the biggest way to get someone's attention subliminally. I agree 100%. So by all accounts, the songs were pouring out of her. Producer Salam Remy remembers her writing basically a song a day, just sitting in the backyard with a guitar. And he says she didn't drink or use drugs the entire time she was working with him in Miami. And Mark Ronson, who produced the other half of the album, had similar stories about Amy's level of productivity during this period. And he said she wrote the title track in two or three hours during their first session together. Right. So... While Amy's creativity may have been flowing, Cynthia's cancer was progressing. And according to Amy's mom, Amy and Cynthia took a final vacation together to Israel before Cynthia died on May 5th, 2006. Everyone remembers Amy being absolutely devastated by this and immediately spiraling downwards, most notably into her alcohol addiction and bulimia. It's so dark. Yeah. So it's also the year, surprise, surprise, that Amy solidifies her new look. So you all know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's the Amy Winehouse look. She starts using weaves to give herself a voluminous black beehive hairstyle. Her cat eye makeup takes over more and more of her face. She oscillates between two outfit options, tank tops with skinny jeans or retro pinup dresses showcasing her increasingly tiny waist. This is like, you know what I think of when I look at these pictures of her? She was like, um, do you know who Carl Heinz Weinberger was? No. He was like a Swiss photographer that took pictures of bad youth in the 60s. Google this shit up. Google it up right now and tell me it's not her look up and down. But her look is like this weird bricolage of like... 60s, but then also like 90s signifiers of like youth gone wild that she kind of adheres to her exterior as a way of saying, Oh, this yeah, is bitch, this is her, right? Yes. That is her. Also, have I ever been hornier for anything than I am for Carl Heinz Weinberger? I boys? know you can buy one for not a lot of money, also. I'll just put but, that out there. Like, can I have sex with one? Um, I, I imagine that they're all deceased, but there is a guy in my neighborhood who's probably in his 50s who looks like he still listens to the drifters, and I could put in a good word for you. That'd I don't be know great. if he speaks English, he looks Polish. That'd be great. But anyway, so the change 
in her physical identity is so dramatic. You can see it like over the course of maybe six months, you watch this change start to unfold. And the change, again, I will suggest is directly reflective of her obsession with Blake and her need to try to make herself into something through bricolage that's as cool as she thinks he is. Another aspect of this look that's extremely important and extremely specific is these exceedingly grimy ballet flats, which she wore everywhere, which you can find her fans debating whether they were Freed or Capizio. Bendito. So on October 27th, Back to Black is released in the UK. How do we even begin to describe what a huge hit this album was? She got so famous so fast. I mean, people already knew who she was. This was beyond. Rehab was released as a single, peaked at number seven, remained on the charts for 57 straight weeks. It was everywhere. Billboard wrote that Rehab proved a better buzz than a double gin martini. That's bad writing. Very bad. Ghostface Killer wraps a verse on a re-release of You Know I'm No Good. Jay-Z does a verse on a re-release of Rehab. Everyone's saying shit like, this is the greatest breakthrough CD of our time. My dad is listening to it in his Volvo. The album hits number one in 18 countries in 2007 and is on pretty much everyone's year-end best of list. It starts winning awards left and right, including Amy's second ever Ivor Novello Songwriting Award. No one ever heard of that award in America, sorry to say. Well... Amy's lyrics from Mr. and Mrs. Jones even became a kind of meme as they popularized the saying, what kind of fuckery is this? As in Alyssa saying, Lena, you're obsessed with your parents. What kind of fuckery is this? (laughs) So there's an interview with her from the week that the album was released, and it's sort of our last glimpse of this old, casual Amy. Roll that clip. So where's the next album going to come from? I really don't know. I mean... I'm quite a self-destructive person, so I guess, I guess I keep giving myself material. Something's (laughs) going to go wrong. Yeah, something always does. I mean, it's wild to watch her because it's like, on the one hand, she's so present. And on the other hand, she's just struggling to even get a sentence out of her mouth. Like, she's just struggling to even be able to express herself. It's like there's these two people trapped in this one physical form. Well, when I look at her here also, you know, there's always a turning point where self-abuse and addiction start to show up on your surface. Yep. You know, like I'm not sure what causes the tipping point, but there's always a tipping point. So when I look at her here, I look at her jaw and I see her bulimia and you watch her like rolling up the sleeves on her shirt in this way that seems like the energy is is bursting out of her body. So you start to see these things coming to the surface. It looks to me like she's indulging in some bad habits here and that those bad habits are the ones that are eventually going to take over. It doesn't get better from here, guys. Yeah. So Amy heads out on tour and she hardly takes a break. She plays a massive show at Coachella and she's becoming this huge star with big crossover appeal. But she's also under immense pressure. She's losing weight. Her beehive looks like shit. Let's face it. It's falling to the side like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And she's drunk in public all the time and acting the fuck out. 
She makes a bunch of increasingly concerning TV appearances on the British music quiz show Nevermind the Buzzcocks, which I literally can never believe that's a real TV show title in an actual country. She was so clearly sloshed that the host, Simon Amstel, joked, this isn't even a pop quiz show, it's an intervention. Damn. Let it die, please. Let it die, please. The addiction I'd like to die. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> you back. This isn't even a pop quiz anymore. It's an intervention, Amy. <laughs> All right. I have something to say. Yes. So the thing about this clip is that I don't know how sincere these people were because it plays directly into that rehab song where everyone's like, Amy Winehouse, you're so fucked up. You have to go to rehab. And she's like, this is just how I am. So when you see it on television, I find that it's like a highly constructed clip that's meant to kind of perpetuate this specific biographical element that circulates around her notorious addictions. These people don't feel sincere. It feels like it's making a mockery of whatever she's going through, which makes the whole thing feel incredibly dark. And you can feel her playing along and then you can feel her disdain for them. And I find her disdain for them incredibly relatable. Well, there's a point where she probably feels like that joke isn't funny anymore, like enough. And on this second appearance, Simon asked after the old wine house and Amy said, she's dead. Can we resuscitate the old wine house? Oh, no. I loved you when you were sober. She's dead. <laughs> she said it in a way that was kind of funny, though. Yeah, she's um, always funny. But let's talk about what's happening with her persona here. So she's certainly getting a lot of bad press. It's not nice to be called wino in headlines all the time. But also a lot of people loved that she was fucked up and honest about it and that she seemingly didn't give a shit what other people thought of her. So this is happening at a time when someone like, say, Amanda Bynes or Misha Barton will be arrested for drunk driving or whatever. And they'll be like, I wasn't drunk driving. I just took an allergy pill and it interacted poorly with my antibiotics. So Amy Winehouse is like, yeah, I'm drunk. What? It's like when my dad said that someone put Advil in his Coke in high school. It's like... Right. And it made his mind go far out. Yeah. It's just like, be fucking honest. And it helped that she was also always saying what everyone was thinking. Like the time she heckled Bono during an award show yelling, shut up. I don't give a fuck. Like... Yeah. It was very refreshing and she wasn't scared and she was adorable in her kind of, she was like a little rascal and she was like a little drunk rascal. And it was like working for her in a way that it hadn't worked for a public female celebrity either in a very long time or ever. I can't really call to mind someone who had this sort of very traditionally masculine public persona and attitude that was as beloved as she was. I, I can't think of anybody who did it as well. And it should be noted that talking about your substance abuse in a glamorized way is something that has been traditionally allowed for male musicians and embraced for male musicians. Yeah, absolutely. Like, think about what the really old one from the Rolling Stones. What's his name? <laughs> Wait, you mean Keith Richards? Yeah. The old one like from the Rolling like, Stones. Everyone's like, Keith, tell us another. And everyone's like, look at him. He looks so amazing. If he could do that right. much heroin, then I can do anything. Like, right. there's so much lore around him. And, yes. and I think about this all the time. Like, when I decided to be public about the fact that I got sober, I was like, 
I'm not going to get the Robert Downey Jr. response. Oh, no, ma'am. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get the you're a fucking liability response. That is how this is going to go. Yeah. But there's also the question of whether Amy's bad behavior helped her sell albums because her public hijinks made her music feel so confessional and raw. I mean, it's unclear whether it was working for her or whether she sold albums despite it. And that's still the push and pull around her identity. So in some ways, it seems like she's also feeding into this cult of personality. So she's regularly giving interviews where she says things like, quote, I do drink a lot and I'm a very bad drunk, a violent drunk, unquote. She is by this point constantly referencing her substance abuse like it is some kind of artistic fantasy and our acceptance of it as such feeds into the machine of her addiction. And it is an addiction, as we all know, that will eventually come to claim her life. So from here on out, I think we can say that this story gets darker and darker. Yeah. So we are going to put a bookmark in Amy's story here because there is too much to fit into one episode. Too much trauma. Yep, we'll be back in two weeks with part two of Amy Winehouse's story. But for now, I am Lena Dunham. And I'm Alyssa Bennett. And we will never call you crazy. The C Word is a Luminary podcast. It's produced by Pineapple Street Studios and Good Thing Going Productions. Our producers are Dina Kleiner and Liz Watson. Sophie Bridges and Diane Hobson are our associate producers. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are our executive producers and overlords. Our theme song is by The Liz Fair. Yes, The Liz Fair. Other music by Matthew McLaughlin and Andrew Miller. Special thanks to Michael Cohen and Alexis Moore. That was our episode on Amy Winehouse. Join us for more by subscribing to the Luminary channel on Apple Podcasts. Did you subscribe yet, Alyssa? I've subscribed since the beginning. Well, aren't you a good student? A++ for you. Finally.